Welcome to the Martinskirk Podcast, a publication of sermons and lessons from Trinity Reformed Church of Martinsburg. Trinity Reformed exists to declare the victory of Jesus Christ through worship and practice to the ends of the earth. To learn more about our congregation, visit martinskirk.com. Again, the sermon passage this morning is Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 4, verse 1. So let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts this morning be pleasing to you, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. May we stand fast in this truth, this gospel truth that our Lord Jesus took on human flesh, dwelt among us, and gave his life as a ransom for many. May we understand what it means to give up our lives for the sake of the cross and for one another. And that this leads not to death, but to resurrection life in your Son, Jesus Christ. May we be raised from the dead this morning and our hearts enlivened to your reading. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Now many of you have heard it said that heaven is our home. Right? I like to, I like to quote N.T. right here a lot, of, a lot of times. Right? Heaven is not our home, we're just a passing through. But the origin of that saying, heaven is our home, can be found in this sermon passage this morning from Philippians 3. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, of course, our heaven doesn't stay up in the clouds somewhere. It doesn't stay up out of our reach. Heaven, at the end of all things, will kiss earth. Heaven will meet earth. A new heaven and a new earth will be our home. The resurrection of the dead will include the cleansing of all creation from the corruption of sin and death. The heavenly city, our new Jerusalem, the city in which our citizenship is held, will be in a new earth. Our lowly bodies will be conformed to Christ's glorious body, and all things will be made new. Heaven is the dwelling place of God, where our Lord Jesus sits and reigns over heaven and earth, But that earth will be as heaven when our Lord comes again, transformed by the glorious light of Christ, every square inch redeemed in the sun. So when we say that we are citizens of heaven, we are saying something quite different from this world does not matter. When we say we're citizens of heaven, we're saying something different than this world does not matter. It is a call to action in this physical world That we live in. It is a call to live according to the ways of that heavenly city so that the cities of men, the earthly cities, might be called into that glorious life as well. There is a way the world walks, and then there is a way that we are to walk. We are to follow the heavenly pattern, the heavenly example of our Lord Jesus Christ. The way of the world is destined for destruction, the way of the cross is destined for life. The way of the world is led by unbridled desires, and the way of the cross is is led by unbridled joy. The way of the world glories in their shame, and the way of the cross is the path to glory through our shame. There are carnal men, and then there are heavenly men. Man under Adam and man under Christ, who is the heavenly Adam. And his gospel points us to the purpose of our earthly life, which is himself. 
our glorified and resurrected Savior. He is the purpose of our lives, the end of our existence. He is the one who fulfills all desire. He is the glorious one who takes away our shame. Many walk in the way of the world, but we are called to walk in the way of Christ, to stand fast in the Lord. Now, St. Paul pauses in chapter 3 of Philippians to tell the church at Philippi to join in following his example. To join in following his example. Now, one thing that is often lost in the modern church is the idea of spiritual fatherhood or mentorship. And St. Paul unashamedly says in 1 Corinthians 4, 15-16, For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore I urge you, imitate me. Imitate me. He urges the Corinthian church to follow his example, to imitate him. Now, of course, he later qualifies this in the, in the, in the book of 1 Corinthians. In chapter 11, verse 1, he qualifies this by saying, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Right? So he's not calling them to imitate him for the sake of imitating him, but to imitate him as, as he also imitates Christ. Follow his example as he lives out the example of Christ. As a minister of the gospel, his job was to be an example to the flock on how to follow their Lord Jesus. But he also says to note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. So Paul is not the only example of one who is like Jesus. He's not saying, I'm the only one who imitates Christ, so follow me. He's saying, note also those who walk according to this pattern, to follow them as well. There are many who are set up as examples for them to imitate. And this is one of the reasons why the qualifications for elders and and ministers and deacons in the Bible are so strict and so specific. Every officer in Christ's church, is meant to be an example for the flock to follow. There There is an apostolic pattern of living that Christ gave to his people. And ministers, elders, and deacons do not always follow this pattern well. We sin often and need to reorient our lives back to the pattern of Christ. But we have to know that the officers of Christ's church are ordained not for power and control, but service and example. Service and example. We exist to equip you for your ministry as priests and kings in the household of God. And if you look at the progression of this particular passage in Philippians 3, you can see a pattern quite easily. You can see a pattern that's set up. Paul is an earthly example of a spiritual man. He is to imitate Christ for them. Then he goes on to talk about carnal men, earthly men. Those men among them that walk as enemies of the cross and live according to earthly things. And then Paul transitions to speak of our citizenship being heavenly and our bodies transformed into the image of the glorious body of Christ. He goes from earth to heaven, from earth to heaven, from death to resurrection. The earthly example of those who walk in the pattern of Paul and ultimately Christ are supposed to point us upward to the heavens, to resurrection and glory. But there are also those lives that point us to destruction. And these people whom Paul has told the Philippians about often, he says, these are people whom they know. He has told them and warned them over and over again. 
These people are not Roman pagans. They're not neighbors who don't know anything about Jesus. These people are people whom Paul has wept over. These people are near to them. These people are near to the church. These are Christians who choose not to follow his example, Paul's example, and instead turn to their passions and to their shame. Now, there are two kinds of people that Paul could be speaking about here. He doesn't list them specifically about what what kind of Christians he's talking about. But they could be Jewish Christians or they could be Gentile Christians. Okay. Now, it's most likely that this people, these carnal men that he is speaking of, are Gentiles. That's most likely because of the nature of the sins that he mentions. Paul says that these are enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, this has been used before to describe Jewish Christians, right? But here, Paul, I think, uh, rightly, I think a, a right understanding of this is that he's talking about Gentile Christians. These are not easy words to say of fellow believers. We have to remember that he is talking about baptized Christians when he says that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Through the way in which they live, they are enemies of the cross. Why does he call them this? He calls them this because their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. So they are enemies of the cross because they are what some theologians call antinomians. They are against the law. They are against the law. They think that whatever they can do, whatever, whatever this life is about, they can do whatever they, they wish because they've been forgiven by Jesus. They believe what Paul disputes in Romans chapter 6. Remember, Paul says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, these people say, yes, yes, we should. But Paul says, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? So they are enemies of the cross because they believe that it provides them license to do as they please in the flesh. Their God is their stomach. This speaks a little bit more than just food and drink. This is appetite in general. Their God is their passions. They serve their unbridled appetites. They do not serve Christ like they confess with their mouth because they will not bridle their passions as they ought. And this is especially timely. This message is especially timely in our day and age in the Western nations. We don't know how to control our appetites. We don't know how to control our appetites and instead we serve them like slaves serving a master. These Christians thought that that the forgiveness that they received in Jesus, the forgiveness that is given to them through the cross of Christ, meant that there was no requirement to deal with their sin. The more you sin, the more grace you receive. And this is a mockery of Christ's death. And it shows that their hearts are carnal, not truly belonging to the heavenly King, Jesus. Now, Philippi, we need to know a little bit about this region. It was a Roman province, a Roman territory and city. Now, if you know anything about uh, the various Roman philosophies at the time, one thing that was uh, one idea that filled a lot of Roman philosophy was the idea that the body was a cage for the soul. It was a cage for the soul. And in death, the soul is freed from this messy and gross body and is given this true spiritual life at the end of all things. True spirituality had nothing to do with the body for the philosophically inclined Roman. 
for the Roman pagans that the body was, was nasty and corrupt and a cage for the soul. The true self was in the body somewhere down deep. Now add that type of worldview and put the Christian label on it. And this is the, this is the struggle that Paul is having at the church of Philippi. Right? We have the, this view of forgiveness of sins added on to this assumption of the way the body and spirit are to work. So if you do that, if you overlay the forgiveness of sins on that sort of philosophy, then it doesn't matter what you do in the flesh. It doesn't matter. Since it is forgiven in Christ, have your way fulfilling your desires of the flesh. Their God was their belly. And this isn't, again, this isn't just talking about food and drink. It's talking about sexual appetite as well. We can see this in in the Corinthian church. That unbridled appetites lead to other aspects of your life. The Corinthian church had the same problem. They couldn't control any appetite of the flesh. And Paul had some choice words for them as well. Their God was their belly. Which means that their glory was in their shame. Their glory was in their shame. Those two are connected. They were unashamed of the shameful acts that they were committing because they did not truly serve the Christ they professed with their mouth. They gloried in their shame. They loved it. They didn't hide it. Right? They didn't hide it. They didn't hide their rebellion. And Paul says to the church at Philippi that this way leads to destruction. These men and women are enemies of the cross and will be put to shame on the day of resurrection. They were Christian in name only. Inwardly, they were carnal. They set their mind on earthly things. Now, the earthly wasn't a picture of a spiritual reality for them, but it was their spiritual reality. The earthly was their end, their purpose, their reward. They had their reward already. And contrary to these carnal men, we have Paul exhorting the Christians here to remember where their allegiance lies. They were citizens of heaven. Citizens of heaven. And their behavior with their bodies was to reflect that citizenship. Their bodies were set apart for resurrection in Jesus Christ. They were not souls waiting to be freed from earthly passions, but whole beings, a body and soul, awaiting their final salvation in Christ, to be conformed to His glorious body. Our bodies are meant for glory, not just our souls. And this is what it means to be truly spiritual. This is what it means to be truly spiritual. It is not the rejection of the body, but the conforming of our body to the body of Christ. Now Paul, in describing the Christian life, has described it as a race before. And this goes along with this theme of body and soul. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 24, Paul tells us, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I, when I preach to others, I myself should become disqualified. Paul disciplines his body. We discipline our bodies and control our appetites and desires 
Not because any and all desire is bad. That's not why we do it. We bridle our bodies because our bodies were created for the purposes of God. God did not create our bodies accidentally. They're not an afterthought to the purposes of God. Heidelberg question one. Hopefully you all know this one, right? What is thy only comfort in life and death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, right? With body and soul, in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And this corresponds to citizenship here as well. Roman citizenship was not local. We, we don't... We don't think of citizens of Philippi. They were Roman. They were Roman citizens. Their citizenship was held in Rome. Right? That is where they are registered. They were citizens of the city of Rome, not Philippi, not Thessalonica, not Ephesus. Where their emperor was is where their citizenship was. They were citizens of the great earthly city of Rome. And likewise, our citizenship. Right? We are citizens of of the city where our king resides, the heavenly city of the new Jerusalem. Roman citizens were subject almost totally to their nation and to their emperor. He had control over their bodies. He could execute them, he could banish them, or he could elevate them in his empire. He had control over body, but not soul. Our King Jesus has even more sovereignty over our bodies. We are his both body and soul. Our whole being belongs to our King, Jesus, in the heavenly city, the New Jerusalem. So Christians are to follow the example of those who follow Christ, our King. Our bodies should be disciplined so that our God does not become our appetites. Because man cannot serve two masters. Our master is Jesus. So we should not glory in the shame of sin. But in denying sin, in denying worldly lusts, we attain true glory only found in Christ. And though the world may shame our bodies, may ridicule us, may debase us physically, we know that true glory is found through the cross of shame. Our bodies may be brought low, but at the end of the cross is life everlasting. So we are told to walk according to this pattern giving both our bodies and souls to Christ, making us friends to the cross. We can look upon it with hope and with joy. We can even greet death as a friend because in Christ it is a vehicle to the resurrection of our bodies and the life everlasting. Our lowly, corrupt bodies will be conformed to the glorious body of our faithful Savior. Now our earthly lives, this, this is what this means, our earthly lives should point to the eternal life of Christ. Our conduct here in the present, in in the presence of all the world around us, in this earthly place that we call home right now, right? In the presence of all in this world, our conduct should be of a citizen of heaven. Any loyalties that we have to our earthly authorities should be in subjection to our heavenly authorities. Any loves that we have of earthly things or of earthly people should be in subjection to our love for our Heavenly Savior. And this is what it means to have our minds set on things above. It doesn't mean that we excuse ourselves from the world. It doesn't mean that we, uh, we don't care about anything that happens in the earth. 
It means that all the things we do come from our heavenly home. The Lord gives us good gifts. He gives us food, drink, friends, homes, nations, neighbors. He gives us all of these things. But all these good gifts are to be managed according to the word of God. That is, according to the example of Christ and his apostles. And again, the Lord didn't leave us with his word and say, good luck. Right? He, didn't just, he didn't just leave us with some book and just say, I hope you can make it. Right? He gave us a spirit. And he also gave us a spirit-filled people. Spirit-filled men to be examples to us of heavenly living. The writer of Hebrews sort of hints at this when he tells us that the tabernacle were copies of the heavenly realities. All the furniture, all the food, and water, and gold, and everything in the tabernacle was given to us to show us the heavenly reality and to allow us to participate in that heavenly reality. And the same is said for the living tabernacle. The living temple, the church, we have living stones as examples to us of how to build up the kingdom of God. We have earthly copies of heavenly realities. So we can do what Paul tells us to do, to join in following their example and note those who walk in such a way. In other words, to imitate imitate those people God has put in authority over your life. To follow them, but to only follow them as far as they imitate Christ. As far as they imitate Christ. And even more than this plea for the Philippians to imitate Paul's example, he goes on to say, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. So these people are Paul's joy and crown, his beloved. And this is because there is an attachment that Paul has to this congregation, to all of his congregations. He had this attachment because he had been ordained to shepherd and to guide them, spirit, um, guide them spiritually as a father does to children. Hebrews chapter 13 says that rulers in the church must give an account for the souls under their care. This means that if these souls are wayward or not fed, not fed properly, that the rulers in charge of them will be judged. But this also means that if these rulers do a faithful job, that these souls will be a crown and a joy to them, not only now, but on the last day. So saints, my most fervent prayer for you and for your children, and has been for at least two years, is that you would be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, that your lives will be conformed more and more into his image so that you may obtain the hope of your inheritance, the salvation of your souls. That is the purpose of my ministry, the elders' ministry, the deacons' ministry. That is the purpose of Christ's ministry to you. That you may obtain the hope of your inheritance, the salvation of your souls. So do not be carnal men. Do not be carnal women. Do not be conformed with the lusts and desires of the flesh. Do not be consumed by them. Do not be led by your bellies. Passions are terrible gods. They are terrible gods. Do not glory in your shame. Do not glory in your shame. 
Do not presume that you can sin and sin and sin over and over again. And then on Sunday, you say the right words that everyone else says, and then you're all set. Then you can go and sin without a second thought this week. Do not presume. Do not presume that. The carnal mind is licentious and presumptive. The spiritual mind, on the other hand, does not presume, but fearfully confesses all its faults, appealing to Christ for the power to put those sins to death. We are called to stand fast in the Lord, to not be moved by our passions and sinful desires, but to stand tall against them, no matter the cost to you. And fighting sin costs a lot. We've seen recently a disciplinary case. By by God's grace, he was restored back to Christ and his church, and, and we rejoice in that, right? But sin is always costly, and we know this. It costs embarrassment. It costs pain. Right? It costs losing friends and family members. It costs your job. It costs sometimes even your own life. And the carnal mind says that those things are worth losing. Those things are worth enduring. The carnal mind doesn't cover offenses in love, but responds rashly and harshly. The carnal mind doesn't think of others before before itself, but selfishly consumes. The carnal mind is enslaved to itself. The spiritual mind has true freedom. The spiritual mind is free from guilt and shame. The spiritual mind is free from selfish ambition and striving, free from lust and all manner of vile passions, free to follow Christ wherever he leads with joy. Because the spiritual mind knows its end, knows its purpose. And the end or purpose of our earthly striving is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In Him, our lives are transformed from our lowly state to His glorious one. And all He asks of you is that you die. That's it, right? Just die to yourself. Die to your own way. Die to your appetites. Die to your shame. Be a friend of the cross of Christ. Because through it is the promise of resurrection life. And that promise is sure because it is made by the one who is able even to subdue all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my crown and joy, so stand fast in the Lord. Beloved, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.